I'm convinced that as believers, we often have the wrong idea when it comes to Scripture. Far too often, Scripture is seen as a burden to be born rather than a blessing that it's meant to be. Scripture becomes a burden because it's difficult to live out. When I hear someone say that being a Christian is easy, my first thought is always, I wonder if they've actually read the Bible. Uh, Because, I mean, if we're honest, I mean, if we're just really honest, Scripture has a lot of hard things that it says that we're supposed to do or be or not do or not be. For instance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Now, holiness is more than morality. Morality is certainly included there. But holiness is, is purity down in the very core of our being. It's not that we appear moral or pure in public, but that we are, we are pure. We are holy in the very center of who we are. Holiness affects our devotion. We are pure in our devotion to Jesus. Holiness affects our actions. We do what Jesus would have us to do. Holiness affects our reactions. We react to stressors in the ways that Jesus would have us to react. Holiness affects our attitudes. We have an attitude as we do things that Jesus wants us to have. Holiness, it affects our our priorities. It affects the way we organize our lives. Holiness affects our motivations, why we do the things that we do. Holiness, to be holy as it's understood in Scripture, that is a, a hard, challenging concept. But that's just one. Jesus said, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, in Jesus' day, to, to be slapped, it wasn't so much about a physical assault as it was an insult. When you slap somebody, you were saying to them, they're less than you. They're not someone you need to respect. It was a way to demean them and to degrade them. The closest thing in our culture to that kind of a slap would be to spit in someone's face. Now, if someone walks up to you this afternoon and spits in your face, how are you going to react? Jesus said, don't act like that. He said to turn the other cheek. That's a complicated order to obey, isn't it? Or or how about this? If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. I mean, as a people, how good are we at self-denial? How good are we at not doing what we want to do just because we want to do it? But Jesus says we have to. We also to take up our cross, the idea of taking up our cross, it's it's not to wear a cross on our shirt. And the idea of taking up your cross is not that there's a hardship that you have to deal with in your life and that's your burden to bear. The cross was an instrument of death. When Jesus said to take up your cross, what he's saying is die to yourself. 
die to your will and die to your wants and die to your desires so that you can follow me. Because really, the only way we can follow Jesus is to die to ourselves. That's difficult. That's a big, big command. Or or how about this? Jesus said to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I mean, do you realize that as believers in Jesus Christ, we all have a responsibility to share the gospel with other people? Each and every one of us has the same responsibility to do it. You know, we have people within our sphere of influence, people that we interact with on a regular basis, family, friends and co-workers and neighbors and people our kids are on sports teams with. And as believers, we have a responsibility, I mean, a responsibility to tell them about Jesus and about their need for Jesus and to urge them to receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. You know, Ezekiel, it speaks about a watchman on the wall who who sees the, the sword coming and he doesn't warn the people that the people are still going to die. But their blood will be held to account by the watchman. We're we're accountable to God to whether or not we preach the gospel to every creature, each and every one of us. It's difficult, isn't it? That's a weighty responsibility. That's that's hard. And so these sort of things, they're, they're difficult. They're hard to do. And Scripture can become a burden because they're hard. But not only are they hard, I would say that in a large part they're unnatural. And what I mean by unnatural is they're not the, just the natural way we're going to go. I mean, just think about it in your life. In your life, do you naturally gravitate towards holiness or sin? And again, don't think about loose morality, but think about your priorities, your actions, your reactions, your thoughts and your attitudes. Do you naturally gravitate towards holiness in those areas or sin in those areas? Think about turning the other cheek. If someone says something that insults you, If they do something that lets you know they despise you, what is your natural response? To turn the other cheek or to get even? Is your natural response to deny yourself and to die to your will so that you can do what Jesus would want you to do? Or is it just your natural response to do all the things that you want to do because you want to do them? Is your natural response when you're around a group of people that you're pretty sure don't know Jesus, is your natural response to talk to them about Jesus and their need for Him, or to talk about the weather, or the football team, or something else that doesn't require any sort of confrontation? It's difficult. It's unnatural. And because it's difficult and because it's unnatural, what we end up concluding from this is that, that we can't. I mean, we just can't. We, we can't do what Jesus says to do. We can't be who Jesus says we're supposed to be. We can't not do the things that Jesus says we're not supposed to do. We, we can't. And when we embrace the idea of can't, 
we resign ourselves to defeat. We live lives as victims instead of victors, as defeated instead of overcomers. But that doesn't bother us because that's just the way it is. I mean, that's that's who we are. That's the way that life is. And when we can't and we resign to defeat in Scripture and these commands like this, they don't become real. Instead, what they are is they're a they're a pie in the sky. Like if if everything was just right and the stars were in perfect alignment and, and there were no stressors in my life and I got just the right amount of sleep and and I prayed enough and I everything was just right, then then maybe just maybe I could occasionally do these things that Jesus says I'm supposed to do. Maybe, just maybe, occasionally I can, I can be who Jesus says I'm supposed to be. Maybe, just maybe, occasionally I cannot do the things Jesus says I'm not supposed to do. But what if, what if that's not the way it's meant to be? What if we're supposed to have an I can attitude instead of an I can't attitude? What if... Every command in Scripture was meant for our good. What if everything in Scripture was was meant to bring us joy and never be a burden? What if the stuff in Scripture wasn't meant to be a pie-in-the-sky dream of how things could be, but the reality of how things should be and how they could be? Would that change who we are? Would that change How we are. Today for our final message in this series, I want to give you good news. There's more. I can't isn't found in Scripture. Scripture isn't meant to be a burden, but a blessing. Today what I want to do is to help you shift in your thinking. Because for many of us, we've been raised and we've lived for so long under the mindset that I I can't. And it's a burden and it's discouraging and it's frustrating. That to go with the idea of I can and it's a blessing. I mean, it's all a blessing, not just like grace is greater than my sin is a blessing. Not just I will never leave you and forsake you is a blessing, but, but like all of it. The call to be holy. What if that was actually a blessing and not a burden? Today I want to give you good news. You can. We can. And it's all meant to be good. But to understand this, there does have to be a shift in our thinking. But there are three verses that I want us to look at this morning that I think define the shift where the shift has to come. And these these verses give us three truths. The first is John 10 and 10. Jesus said the thief doesn't come except to steal, kill and destroy. But he came that we could have life and life more abundantly. Now, a part of what this means is that everything Jesus says and everything Jesus does and everything Jesus calls on us to do. Is meant to give us life And life more abundantly. And this doesn't just include grace and salvation and forgiveness. Now certainly, 
grace and salvation and forgiveness are included in life in life more abundantly. But everything Jesus says that we're supposed to do, everything Jesus says we're not supposed to do, everything Jesus says we're supposed to be, in some way, should give us life and life more abundantly. Do you believe that? Do you believe that everything Jesus said, everything Scripture says, somehow can cause us to experience life and life more abundantly? Do you believe that resisting and not doing everything Scripture says we're not supposed to do will in some way give us life and life more abundantly? Do you believe that if we are who Jesus says we're to be, it will enable us to experience life and life more abundantly? That's the first shift. We've got to go there in our minds. Secondly, Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and your joy may be full. Now, these things are written in the immediate context. It refers to his teaching in John 13, 14 and 15. But it's not a a stretch to say that these things would include all of the teachings of Scripture. So what are all of these things given to us for? That our joy would remain and that our joy may be full. Now, that's a big shift for some, isn't it? I mean, for many people, Christianity is is taught and lived as though it were the end of joy. It were the beginning of misery. That in order to follow Jesus, that joy must die. But Jesus said he didn't come and he didn't teach That we would have a life of drudgery and misery and hurt and woe. But instead that we would have joy and our joy may be full. The fullness of joy, the complete amount of joy that we're ever going to experience in this life. Now, Jesus' teaching on this is, is backed up by the Psalms. The psalmist said, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. I mean, think about that. Great treasure right here in our hands. Rejoice at all that we read and all that it says. Do you believe this is given that your joy may be full? Do you believe that everything Scripture says we're supposed to do in some way will help us to experience the fullness of joy? Do you believe that if we Resist everything Scripture says we're supposed to resist, that in some way we will receive, experience the fullness of joy. Do you believe that if we are who Scripture says we're to be, that will help us to experience the fullness of joy? That's the second shift that has to take place. And then the third, Jesus said, I I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Without him, we can do nothing of any eternal or spiritual value. Without him, we cannot be holy. He is holy. Without him, 
we won't consistently turn the other cheek. Now, let me say something about turning the other cheek. Turning the other cheek is not an issue of weakness. Right. And that's important as we think about needing Jesus to do this. If I'm afraid. And Scott spits in my face and I'm terrified that Scott's just going to stab me to death and kill me. And so when he does, I just patiently endure it and turn and walk away. That's not what Jesus was talking about. Turning the other cheek is not an issue of cowardice or weakness. It is having the ability to retaliate and to respond and choosing not to. So the issue isn't, can I be overwhelmed and afraid and not turn the other cheek? When I have the ability to respond, can I turn the other cheek? When I have the power to do something about it, can I turn the other cheek? Not without Jesus. Without Jesus, I can't deny myself consistently. Without Jesus, I can't take up my cross and die to myself and follow him. Without Jesus, I can't share the gospel in a way that's going to make sense or be helpful. And without Jesus, I surely cannot lead someone to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, you're saying, but I thought the title of the message was I can, not I can't. Well, the implication of this verse is what we can't do without Jesus, we can do with Jesus. Right? And, and Paul builds on this and Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, that doesn't mean I can quote Philippians 4.13 and go win the world's strongest man competition. But it does mean that because of that verse, I can be holy as he is holy with Jesus and through his strength and his power. I can be holy through Jesus and with his strength. I can turn the other cheek even when everything within me wants to get even. With Jesus, I can deny myself. And with Jesus, I can Take up my cross. And with Jesus, I can follow him. And with Jesus, I can share the gospel as naturally as talking about the weather. And I can do it in such a way that possibly, perhaps, people will come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So do you believe? Do you believe with Jesus... You can do everything Scripture says you're supposed to do. Do you believe that with Jesus you can resist everything Scripture says you're supposed to resist? Do you believe that with Jesus you can be everything Scripture says we're meant to be? It's the third shift that has to take place. We have to believe these things or we will never move beyond frustration in our Christian lives. We will never move beyond Scripture being a burden and it always being a blessing unless we believe that everything in here, it is for our good. And everything in here, it will enable us in some way to live life and life more abundantly. That it will in some way enable us to experience the fullness of joy. And that we can.
that because of Jesus and through Jesus, we actually can do all the things that it says to do. We can resist all the things that it says to resist and we can be everything it says we're meant to be. And what I want to do in the last part of our our message. I'm going to show you how this is true with the issue of holiness. I initially planned to do it with all the ones that I mentioned, but I didn't think there would be time. So I chose holiness and I chose holiness because holiness is often pictured as a burden. If you grew up with holiness type preaching, it was be holy or go to hell. Right. Anybody familiar with that kind of preaching? Anybody ever heard holiness preached in such a way that when it was over, you thought to yourself, well, I can be holy or I can be happy. I can be holy or I can enjoy life, but apparently I can't do both. Have you have you ever known holy people who are some of the most miserable people you've ever known? Crotchety, gripey, negative, hateful people. And you thought, if that's what it is to be holy, Lord forbid that I would ever become that. For many of us, that's our idea. But I want to show you that holiness, it's a blessing. It's a command to be holy as Jesus is holy. It is the best thing. It is a great thing. So first, first John says, this is the message which we have heard from him. And declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, if if we say, well, let me stop there. Light in this passage, it refers to holiness, to purity, to goodness. Darkness refers to sin, to wickedness. So with God, with Jesus, there is all light, all purity, all holiness, all all goodness. Right. So that's the contrast. There's God. Who is in the light and there's not any darkness or sin or iniquity in him at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie, do not practice the truth. So John pictures that we have a a way that we can live our lives. We can live in the light with God or we can live in the darkness with sin, but but we can't do both. Right. We we can't walk in light and darkness at the same time. We, we choose which side we're going to be on. Now, John understands that some people are going to walk in sin. They're going to live a sinful life. And what they're going to say is, I'm closer to God than I've ever been in my whole life. Me and God, we've got our own thing worked out and and he's just OK with the way I'm living. Now, John, John has an answer for that now. I'm going to tell you what John said, but I want you to know I wouldn't say it this way. Here's what John says to people who say they're living in sin and yet close to God. They're a liar and they don't practice the truth. See, it's impossible to walk with God, to walk with Jesus and to walk in sin. The book of Amos says, can two walk together unless they're agreed? To walk in light and to walk in darkness is like trying to walk north and south at the same time. It's not something that you can do. So now let's think about the abundant life. An abundant life, life in all its abundance. 
And, and whatever that would mean. Surely we would say that to experience life and life more abundantly, that Jesus came to give. We actually have to walk with Jesus, right? I mean, I can't ignore Jesus and experience the life that he came to give. I can't reject Jesus and experience the life that he came to give. I can't walk by myself and in the world and experience the life that Jesus came to give. To experience life and life more abundantly, I have to walk with Jesus. And to walk with Jesus, I actually have to walk in the light. So holiness, rather than it being a burden that that keeps me from experiencing the goodness of life, holiness, by pushing sin out of my life and living a holy life, it keeps me close to Jesus. And it allows that life and life more abundantly to flow more freely and more fully Into my life. There is no abundant life without walking with Jesus. And holiness, living a holy life, keeps me close to Jesus and gives me the abundant life that Jesus says I'm supposed to have. Well, it's the same with joy. The psalmist said this. God would show us the path of life and in his presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now again, notice the idea of of walking with Him, being with Him in His presence. And in His presence, what do we experience? The fullness of joy. Now the fullness of joy, that's a big thing. I mean, it is, it's the kind of joy that allows a couple of missionaries who have been wrongly imprisoned and beaten almost to death, to sit in a jail cell at midnight and be singing and praising God instead of whining and feeling sorry for themselves. Fullness of joy. The the picture of the fullness of joy is just that it's almost overflowing in our life, that, that we are wired for joy, that God wants us to experience joy in our life. But not a measure of joy, not just a little joy, but the absolute best joy that we can possibly imagine. And, and the, the, upper, upper, the upper limits of the amount that we can experience, that's what God wants us to have. And pleasures forevermore. Now that's huge. Because life and scripture teach us that there's pleasure in sin for a season, isn't there? But what about pleasures forevermore? Where do we find pleasures that don't run out? Pleasures that don't get old. Pleasures that that next time we have that same pleasure, it's not less. But it's just as much and just as magnificent as it was the first time. We find this only with Jesus. So in His presence, we experience more joy than the world can offer. The absolute Fullness of joy. We experience perfect pleasure that will last forever, that never wears out and it never gets old. But it's only experienced in His presence, at His right hand. So what does sin do to my being at Jesus' right hand? Well, First John said that I can walk in sin or I can walk in the light, but I can't do both. So holiness, it doesn't keep me from things that bring me joy and pleasure. Holiness doesn't keep me from the goodness that that is meant to be experienced in this life. Holiness isn't a, a sucking away and a taking away of joy and pleasure. Instead, holiness 
It enables me to experience the fullness of joy. Holiness enables me to experience pleasure that cannot be compared to anything that this world has to offer. Holiness. Holiness keeps me close to Jesus that I have the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. You see, holiness is for our good. It is for our joy. It is for a life and life more abundantly. That is what Jesus intends for holiness to have. Now, think back to what Jesus also said. He said, the thief comes not except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Sin, rather than give us joy or give us an abundant life, sin steals and kills and destroys in that area. Sin steals the abundant life that Jesus wants us to have. Sin destroys our experience of the fullness of joy. Sin kills our experience of pleasures forevermore. Sin is not a good thing that Jesus is keeping from us. Sin is a destructive thing that Jesus is keeping us from. Because what he's keeping us from keeps us from experiencing the best that he has to offer for our lives. Every time we choose to sin, we miss out on something of the abundant life that Jesus wants us to have. Every time we sin, we miss out on something of the fullness of joy that Jesus wants us to have. Every time we sin, we miss out on something of the pleasures forevermore that Jesus wants us to have. The call to holiness, it is the good thing that Jesus has for us because He has something remarkable and wonderful and great that He wants to pour into our lives and sin always causes us to miss out on that. Now what about the I can do it part? Turn to Second Peter 1. Uh, that would be on page 938 in a pew Bible, I think. I'm going to read verses 2 through 4 and then kind of go back and talk about them. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, to which we have been given exceeding great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. Now, what we're going to talk about in these two verses, these three verses, something we all have, we all have access to. If you have repented of your sins and you have believed in Jesus Christ, then everything this, this passage talks about, this is yours. This is yours, not because you've earned it, and not because you've been worthy. You've earned, you've, this is yours by, by birthright. You have been born again. And because you have been born again, these are yours. So grace and peace be multiplied to you. And the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. So we're going to come back to that, but just get the idea that it's bound up with Jesus. 
as his divine power. Now, I want you to think about that. His divine power. Right. So Jesus, the Bible says, has all power and all authority on heaven and on earth. God, the Bible says, can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or imagine according to the work that's what? At work in us. That divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, I circled all things in my Bible because all things is significant. Not some things, not most things, not a couple of things. All things. So everything we need to live a life of godliness and to have an abundant life, you and I as believers, it has been given to us. And it's been given to us through the divine power of Jesus Christ. A power that's greater than we are. A power that's greater than the world. The great and mighty power of God has put this within us. And enables us to live a life of godliness. Now, godliness is basically Christ-likeness. To be godly, it is to have the, the values that Jesus would have. It is to have the priorities that Jesus would have. To do the actions that Jesus would take. To react in the ways that Jesus would react. To be motivated by the things that would motivate Jesus. Right? So it refers to, to all the things in life, the same things that holiness refer to. And remember, we're to be holy as what? As He is holy. So godliness is basically like holiness. And according to Peter, the divine power of God has given to us everything we need to live a godly life, to be more and more, increasingly more like Jesus. To value what Jesus values. To have the priorities that Jesus would have. To act the way Jesus would act. To have the attitudes Jesus would have. We have everything we need to live like Jesus in this life. But it goes on. By which, oh, and who we've been called to glory and virtue. Let me ask you, does glory and virtue, does it sound like drudgery and despair? Does it sound like defeat and misery? Does it sound like I can't or like I can? By which, right, the same divine power, we have been given exceedingly great and precious promises. That through these, through these promises, by believing them and acting on them, we can be partakers of the divine nature. In other words, we can be more like Jesus. Having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. Think about that. We have everything we need to live holy, godly lives. The promises are, that we have are great and precious and by believing in them, we have become partakers. We have become more and more like Jesus. And it's helped us escape. And the idea is not a kind of a once for all, but just a continual escape. As believers, we're, we're not meant to fall back under sin's control and sin's dominion. We have been given these promises that helped us escape once and can help us escape over and over and over again in our lives. And all of this came about through the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
that through the knowledge of him. So what does Peter say? Through Jesus, we have everything we need to be holy. I can. I can live a holy life. I can walk in the light with him instead of in the darkness of sin. I, I can. If we had time, we would look at Romans 7, where Paul says that, that really, that whether we choose sin or righteousness, it, it's always our choice. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, every sin is a choice. It's a choice that you intentionally and you willingly make. Every time I sin, it's a choice that I willingly and intentionally make. Because I have everything I need to live a life of godliness. I have a spirit who lives within me and pulls me to follow Jesus. I have become a partaker of the divine nature. And so I can. And so can you. Over and over again, Scripture says that we can. We don't have time to look at the others or anything else that, we, that could be in Scripture. But you take this, these principles. Life and life more abundantly. Joy. I can. And you can take anything Scripture says. And you can find how doing what Jesus said gives you life and life more abundantly. You can find how doing what He says gives you the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. You can find a promise that says you can. In every single aspect. The question is, do you believe it? It's a huge shift for some. But it's a shift we have to make. It's a shift that will change everything about who we are. And how we are. And I want to give you some things to do that will help make this shift in your mind. And these things aren't hugely deep things. But they're, they're true things. Study Scripture. If we've been given exceedingly great and precious promises, I better know what those are. The only way I'm going to know what those are it's to study the Bible. Now listen, I, I want to say you need to study on your own. If you come to church twice a week when we have church, I promise I'm going to preach the Bible when I'm here. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not cool. I don't have anything hip to do. I'm going to preach the Bible. That's, that's all I know to do. But twice a week, for 30 to 45 minutes at a time, that's not going to exhaust the riches of the exceedingly great and precious promises that we've been given. You're going to have to be in the Bible yourself. You're going to have to study Scripture for yourself to see what are the promises, what are the commands, what am I to be, to do, to not do, to not be. You've got to study Scripture. Then you've got to believe Scripture. I mean, you've got to believe what you're reading. And I think to believe it, you've got to believe it in two different ways. I think you have to believe the Scripture's right. Because some of the things Scripture says we're supposed to do, that's not going to jive with our natural selves. Well, I just don't feel like that's who I am. Scripture's right. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. 
Some of the things Scripture says we're not supposed to do, we're going to think that we're supposed to do. What the world is different. Doesn't matter what the world has changed. Scripture is right. That that's an all priority belief. You have to bring to it that the Bible, Scripture is right on everything it says. If it says I'm to do it, then it's right. If it says I'm not to do it, it's right. We we have to come to that, or we really don't believe Scripture, and we're not going to live the life that Jesus wants us to to live. So we've got to believe that it's right. But we also have to believe it's real. It's real. Right? When, to start with the stories, when, when the Bible said God spoke the world into existence, that's not a cool story. It really happened. When the Bible says that God delivered Israel from Egypt with a great and mighty hand, that's not a cool story. It really happened. When the Bible says that God made the sun stand still, it really happened. It's real. But not only that, not just the stories, but the promises. That the promise that I can't escape the corruption that's in the world, that I have been given everything I need to live a life of godliness, that's real. It's really true. That I really can find joy in everything Scripture says. That I really can experience life and life more abundantly because of what Scripture says. I must believe it's real. If we don't believe it's right and if we don't believe it's real, we're, we're going to go haywire right there on the spot. You have to believe it's right. You have to believe it's real. Pray regularly. And there is something about talking to God on a regular basis that makes Scripture alive. The Bible says the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. This is not a book written by any normal person. This, these are the very words of God. And as we talk to God and we get in the Word, God will speak to us and it will transform how we view it. It will become right. It will become real. We will want to be in the Bible. Prayer needs to be a regular part of our lives. To be honest, I don't even know how we can have a close relationship with Jesus without praying regularly. And I'm going to say this and move on. Pray regularly doesn't mean you pray while you're in the car on the way to work. Now, you can certainly do that. But if that's all you're praying, I'm not sure that's going to develop your relationship with Jesus in the way that it needs. We all need alone time with Jesus. When you think about a relationship with your spouse, when you were cultivating that relationship, even now, don't you just need sometimes where it's just you two? Didn't you need that to have the intimacy that you were meant to have? We'll not have a relationship with God like we're meant to have. Without spending regular time with him in prayer. Make church a priority. As I said, when we gather here, we're going to look at the word. We're going to study it. We're going to be challenged by it. We're going to see its implications. And the Apostle John, in the book of 1 John, read that. John says that as we, as we walk together, we're actually walking with Jesus. There is something of an experience of Jesus' presence that we have when we gather together that we don't have when we don't gather together. Church is it's his idea. He created it. He died for it. He empowers it. We never outgrow the need for church. 
And then finally, just fast occasionally. Fasting is a spiritual discipline that has fallen on hard times in our culture because it requires us to deny ourselves. And fasting, it's not something you have to do, I don't think. But Jesus said there are certain spiritual battles that we don't win without prayer and fasting. There is something, I'm just going to tell you from my experience. When I fast, the word is far more alive than when I don't fast. When I fast, my prayers are more charged than when I'm not fasting. When I fast, I hear Jesus speak to me far more than I do when I'm not fasting. I'm more sensitive, I'm more alert, I'm more aware of His presence in my life. Prayer and fasting have been two of the best spiritual disciplines I have ever developed in my entire life to help me to grow in my relationship with Jesus. When we choose to do without something so that we can focus more on Jesus, I promise you, He always honors that. He always blesses that. Now, these things that I've I've given here, you're probably looking at that and you're thinking, well, that's nothing new. It's pretty basic stuff. And it is. It is. I really don't know new things. I know basic things. I remember a story, two stories, and we'll close. There was a guy named Dorian Yates, and he was Mr. Olympia for several years. And after he retired, someone asked him, what was, what was the secret to being a world champion bodybuilder? And he said, there are no secrets. You do the basic things and you do them over and over again. There are no secrets to a deep spiritual life. You don't have to read through the book with a secret decoder ring. You don't have to count every six letter and try to put a message together that way. You do basic things and you do them over and over again and they change you. And we want to not believe that. We want to think there has to be a secret. That's why books, if I were to write a book called The Secret Keys to Being Close to Jesus, I could make a billion dollars because everybody wants a secret key. But there aren't any. The Bible tells us a story about a man named Haman. He was a general for a Syrian king. But he was a leper. Someone told him he ought to go to Israel and he ought to go see the prophet of God there. And he'd heal him. And so he goes to see the prophet. And the prophet doesn't even come out to see him. He sends his servant out. And the prophet has a message. Go dip in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be made clean. And he gets mad. He's mad because he thought surely the prophet would tell him to do some huge thing because he was a man of of victory, a man of valor, a man of war. Surely there was some big thing. Why, in his hometown, there were seven rivers cleaner than the Jordan River. And he wasn't going to do it. And his servant said to him, Lord, if he had told you to do some great thing, you would have went and done it. Why not just go do the simple thing? See how that goes. It's a paraphrase. And so he goes and he dips in the Jordan River seven times. That's it. He doesn't recite an incantation. He doesn't pray a particular prayer. 
He doesn't use his secret decoder ring to get a message. He walks in, he walks out, and he does that seven times. And on the seventh time, the Bible says his skin was made new like a baby's. If he had had to have something difficult, he would have missed out on all that God wanted to do in him and through him and for him. But he experienced that by doing the simple things. Friend, if you're here looking for a secret, you'll miss out on all that God wants to do in you, through you, and for you. But I will guarantee you, if you do the simple things over and over again, you will begin to understand that everything Jesus says helps us to experience life and life more abundantly. You will begin to see that by following His commands, there is the fullness of joy and there are pleasures forevermore. And your mindset will shift from I can't to I can. Are you willing to make that shift? Let's all stand.